Welcome to The Quest. This is Alan Mulhan. Firstly, a brief announcement. I hope you're enjoying the episodes. If that's the case, then it'd be helpful if you could leave a comment. If any of you have any suggestions, I will be very interested in reading them. Also, you may care to become a follower of the podcasts. In our last episode, I sketched a relationship between two major economic systems and their impact upon religion and spirituality. The communist systems have a hatred and the history of severe persecution of religion. Only state-controlled religious organisations possibly survive. Capitalism, on the other hand, has increasingly opened up freedom of ideas and religious worship. The challenge to the spiritual position has come from the materialist worldview, which has had immense power, influence and impact. But this is in the realm of ideas, and that is fair enough. Religions should be thus challenged. Science has assembled immense evidence for its materialist worldview, and religions have to answer this paradigm. Those that can't should be consigned to the very large dustbin of history. The decline of religion and magical ways of thinking has often been attributed to the rise of the scientific enlightenment, but the story is more complex. The modern political state in the Western world is typically secular. It is not run by religious authorities. The battle between church and state was fought for many centuries in the Middle Ages, prior to the scientific enlightenment, in which the role of the church was diminished and that of the state was augmented. This dramatic history, sometimes bloody and treacherous, was played out in many countries, but it was well documented in England. Let me give a couple of examples that are well known. Thomas Becket was Archbishop of Canterbury from 1162 to 1170 AD. His severe and ultimately tragic dispute with Henry II centred around the relative powers of church and state. Thomas upheld the independence and power of the Pope and Catholic power independent of the state. Henry II was infuriated by his frequent clashes with the church. His supposed words echo down through the history of the relationship between state and church in England. Quote, who will rid me of this turbulent priest? Unquote. Interpreting this as the king's wish for the death of Thomas, four of his knights slaughtered him in his cathedral at Canterbury. Almost three centuries later, the relationship between Henry VIII and Thomas More was also bloody and tragic. As is well known, King Henry VIII was of murderous disposition. He was probably a psychopath, not infrequent in the ruling classes at that time. Thomas More was his Catholic Chancellor, known for his brilliance and efficiency. However, he opposed Henry on one of his most ambitious projects, the separation of the English Church from the Catholic Church in Rome. This meant that Henry himself, or any reigning monarch thereafter, would become head of the Church of England. As is well known, this project was fuelled by the king's determination to divorce and marry at will. Thomas's life ended in execution in 1535. 
although he was originally condemned to be hung, drawn and quartered, a practice as barbarous as the crucifixions of antiquity. Many a novel, television drama and film has interpreted these compelling events. In particular, Henry VIII is one of the most famous tyrant monarchs in history, despite having no foreign conquests on his curriculum vitae. But plenty of deaths and executions in England, including the beheading of two of his six wives. Behind these domestic and national dramas, there were immense historical changes occurring at the time that were the determining context. I will mention two, since their resonance echoes through the centuries. The first is the emergence of the Renaissance and the complementary movement of humanism. These are both reactions against medieval Christianity and what became its stifling containment of thought, morals and behaviour. They are often dated from the 14th to the 17th centuries and are notable for the explosion in new forms of art, literature and philosophy that put the human being at the centre of creation. Some of the most iconic images of the time are from Michelangelo. Three spring to mind. Firstly, the gigantic sculpture of David, totally naked, a confidence unseen since the Greeks. It was completed in 1504. Secondly, the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, where the hand of God transmits the divine spark to the awakening Adam, the dawning consciousness of humanity. Thirdly, the apparently unfinished sculpted images of the slaves emerging from their stone imprisonment in the block. In none of these do we have the pious, sin-laden, repentant, supposedly holy images of the Middle Ages, endless representations of the Virgin Mary and child, the life and death of Christ, the martyrdom of saints and so on, that dominated the medieval imagination. It was as if humanity burst out of a prison into an immense cosmos of freedom in which classical antiquity, even paganism, became inspirational. However, such views were to inevitably clash with the church. Giordano Bruno, an Italian wandering scholar, was among the most radical. In contrast to the Aristotelian and church views, he argued that the universe was eternal, infinite, alive and populated by numberless solar systems. Like the Hindus, he proposed versions of metempsychosis, transmigration of souls at death into other people or animals, polygenism, that mankind may have more than one origin, completely at odds with the Bible, which states the single origin of all humanity is in God, and panpsychism, that mind is universal in the cosmos, as believed by the Buddhists. He renounced Christian emphases on human imperfection, and true to the spirit of the Renaissance, he proposed a morality that encouraged individuals to perfect their individual powers. He was burnt at the stake by the Catholic Church in 1600. The complementary movement to the Renaissance in philosophy and thought was humanism, originating from the Roman humanitas and the rediscovery of classical Greek philosophy. 
It was Protagoras who said that man is the measure of all things. Like David slaying the Goliath of the Philistines, mankind in the Renaissance could conquer ignorance, backwardness, animal existence, and achieve its destiny and freedom. The divine was not rejected, but was manifest in humanity, which had unlimited possibilities before it. With historical changes, all philosophies undergo stress, conflict and change. Christianity had a pacifying, even civilising influence on the wild European populations of the early Middle Ages. But by the late medieval period, its philosophy of God, the cosmos and the human condition presented severe constrictions upon their expanding minds and horizons, which were reaching across the globe, led by monarchs, states and private enterprise. The Age of Crusades, wars inspired by supposed religious ideologies, had long ended, while new naval technology allowed entrepreneurs to cross oceans and conquer whole continents. The second major historical change that bears upon our theme of the changing relationship of state and church is that of Protestantism, which had caught fire in Northern Europe, inflamed by the outrageous corruption and tyranny of the Catholic Church centred around the Pope in Rome. Luther's dates are from 1483 to 1546, and he lived, therefore, at the same time as Michelangelo, 1475 to 1564, although Luther had a much shorter life. The Protestant Reformation was to eventually limit the power of the Catholic Church mainly to Southern Europe, while Northern Europe generally embraced Protestantism. In the long run, the Protestant North continued the disassociation of state and church so that with the advent of the scientific enlightenment and the industrial revolution the church was no longer decisive in matters of state and government. These transitions were not without considerable bloodshed, wars and persecutions. The emergence of the modern secular state in democracies originating in Europe has then a long history which is only partially in the realm of ideas. At first we witnessed the separation of church and state, then the further weakening of the Catholic Church as it was challenged by the Renaissance and humanist thought, then by Protestantism, which broke away in the north of Europe, becoming one of the midwives of capitalism. Subsequently, the modern state broke away from the domination of monarchs and aristocracy. These are social, political and military dramas in the history of the relationship of church and state, the battle in the realm of ideas was interwoven with them. To understand further the state of religion in the West in the modern period, one needs to add, firstly, the impact of the scientific enlightenment, which over centuries eroded the belief system upon which religions have been based. And secondly, the expansion and dominance of capitalism, the Industrial Revolution, the impact of technological change, the centrality of economic growth. In short, the Western world was no longer Christian, but had become a business civilization with a materialist worldview. This model of business civilization, in one form or another, has now become the dominant global one. This transition in the West has been largely peaceful, an organic historical change, 
Not so in communist countries, whose revolutions were violent and sudden. The precursor of these was the French Revolution of 1789. Subsequently, the Russian and Chinese revolutions did much the same. They overthrew state and church and attempted to alter the very mindset of the peoples they now controlled and dominated. The materialist worldview is the underlying philosophy that accompanied these processes and which has penetrated every aspect of modern thought. Cosmology, physics, chemistry, biology, psychology, politics, economics, history and so on. None of these are a static curriculum since science is based on evidence, hypothesis and induction and is therefore continually changing. All of the overarching paradigms in the history of thought have, at their root, a fundamental view of the cosmos, life and human existence. Thus the religions of the world had a creation myth, a clear idea of the place of mankind within the great scheme of things, and a sense of purpose to human existence. This container of meaning has been questioned, eroded and replaced by the modern worldview which, despite the amazing diversity and expansion of its creations of knowledge and wealth, has an empty centre in which the significance of the human being has diminished and practically disappeared. For the modern worldview, the universe began 13.8 billion years ago, probably as a gigantic expansion of energy, the Big Bang, and evolved for billions of years as an essentially dead cosmos. Our Earth emerged 4.6 billion years ago as a result of material, inanimate forces. Up to the present, the only evidence we have of life in the cosmos is here on Earth, and the materialist worldview says it has emerged by accident. An accident which scientists have been unable to replicate despite our knowledge about the early chemical conditions on Earth as simple cellular life emerged around 3.6 billion years ago. Subsequently, the extraordinary diversity of life on Earth has evolved, according to this worldview, by one chance random mutation after another. Those mutations best suited to the survival of the species were the ones passed on to descendants. For many thousands of years, prior to the Darwinian theory of evolution, most of mankind could find no other explanation for their world or their own existence without reference to God or the gods responsible for this miracle. In a very short period of time, without resort to persecution or force, this view has been turned on its head, and there is now available an extraordinary account of the history of the earth, the emergence of life, and the evolution of human beings all from a materialist perspective, for which ample evidence has been and continues to be given. For example, in the 4.6 billion years since the Earth was formed, life subsequently evolved in the following stages. 3.6 billion years ago, simple cells. 3.4 billion years ago, cyanobacteria performing photosynthesis, essential for oxygen. 2 billion years ago, complex cells, eukaryotes. One billion years ago, multicellular life. 
600 million years ago, simple animals. 550 million years ago, bilaterians, water life forms with the front and the back. 500 million years ago, fish and proto-amphibians. 475 million years ago, land plants. 400 million years ago, insects and seeds. 360 million years ago, amphibians. 300 million years ago, reptiles. 200 million years ago, mammals. 150 million years ago, birds. 130 million years ago, flowers. 60 million years ago, the primates. 20 million years ago, the family Homidae, the great apes. 2.5 million years ago, the genus Homo, our human predecessors. 200 to 300,000 years ago, anatomically modern humans. Periodic extinctions have temporarily reduced the immense diversity on Earth. 2.4 billion years ago, an oxygen catastrophe killing much of the life on Earth at that time. 250 million years ago, the trilobites in the Permian-Triassic extinction event. 66 million years ago, the petasaurs and the non-avian dinosaurs in a massive extinction event. Evidence for evolution exists not only in fossil records, the composition of the Earth's atmosphere over long periods of time, the stratified layers of the Earth, and so forth, but also with the evidence of modern DNA analysis, which shows that the differences in DNA between humans on the one hand and chimps and bonobos on the other is very small, about 1.2%, while there is a slightly greater DNA difference between humans and gorillas. 1.6%. DNA shows that humans are definitely part of the family of the great apes. As we go further down the evolutionary tree, so the DNA differences grow. Thus a cat and a human share about 90% of their DNA, while mice share with humans about 85%, and so on. Right down the evolutionary line, the DNA differences correspond to what we expect from the evolutionary story we have constructed over the last 150 years. The correspondence of evidence from different fields is impressive. Science has multiple layers of evidence for most threads of its paradigm, the materialist worldview. Let it be said that the systems of religious thought only had speculation and revelation without for a moment feeling the need for evidence. Evidence is a very modern phenomenon. The view that was opening up in the Renaissance with thinkers such as Bruno were anathema to the closed system of the Catholic Church and its Aristotelian view of the earth at the centre of creation, as implied by the Bible. Neither were such views especially welcomed by the scientific enlightenment, which tried to see the universe mechanically and irrationally. It took to the 20th century for Bruno's spiritual views and metaphysical vision to find sympathetic resonance. For it is in the late 20th and early 21st century, that is our own times, that a revision of the cosmos and the place of humankind within it becomes possible. From the 17th century onwards, the idea that human beings had a soul, that they had an inner spiritual dimension, which was connected to the transcendent, became increasingly difficult to maintain in the face of science and the dominant 
materialist worldview. Formal Christian religion in Western Europe went into long-run decline. Today, the Christian churches stand largely empty. Many converted to other uses, sometimes even drinking houses with sports entertainment, or taken over by other faiths, while the great cathedrals occasionally echo to the clamour of tourism. The idea of the soul became the province of artists, such as the Romantics, who, like Wordsworth, found their expression in the sublime of nature, or mystics such as William Blake, who saw a world in a grain of sand, or painters like Turner, who portrayed the divinity of light, or poets like Keats, who, on hearing the immortal Nightingale, almost died upon the midnight with no pain. The soul was partially rescued by art, but this was only for a minority. The Industrial Revolution gathered pace, and the vision of the human as a soulless being, a ghost in the machine, an accident that arrived in the universe by chance, became the accepted norm. Morals no longer had an anchor. Meaning is self-invented. Narcissism, both of the depleted and grandiose varieties, became emblematic of the new age. Alienation of the psyche, fragmentation of communities and families became increasingly common as mankind subjected itself to the dominance of the economic machine and its technological masters. The chief reference point is utility, individual human happiness, which is interpreted as pleasure units. The birth of depth psychology with Sigmund Freud was also a rejection of the transcendent the black tide of mud, as Freud referred to it. However, once again, there is a rescuing of the soul from its state of neglect. Carl Jung, at first Freud's heir apparent and then self-exiled outcast, makes a plea to his own soul and begins his descent into his own madness in search of gnosis and rebirth. It can be argued that the whole of Jung's work is about the rebirth of the soul in the desert of the 20th century. In our next episode, I shall explore more deeply the alternative worldview that has emerged in the contemporary period. I wish to end this episode with another poem from The Sower and the Seed. For those who have followed these podcasts, you may remember the pilgrim has left home and security to pursue the pilgrimage, his search for the soul. He reaches the mountains and receives his gnosis. At this point he asks a number of questions and receives answers. The third day in the mountain he asks about the goal of the individual. In other words, he's asking about the soul and its place in human nature, its position in relationship to reason, instincts, emotions, the unconscious and the shadow. Here is the poem. The third day in the mountain height a voice rose from his heart. The light grew strong in morning sky. Soon he would depart. A soaring question rose from earth. Its sky flew like a bird. How can humankind be whole? These are the words he heard. Five parts there are to humankind. Your instincts at the ground. Emotions and the ego next. 
the unconscious then is found. Though none should be neglected, and all should have their role, but so that there is balance, their master is the soul. The instincts are your oldest part, evolved through countless years. Desire and reproduction, aggression and your fears. Totality of your body, a great deal of your brain. Inheritance can't be ignored, your last link in a chain. Twixt creature and the ego, emotional structure lies. Rooted in the deep earth's soil, it reaches to the skies. It's all your strongest passions, the noble ones as well. There has to be a guide for these, or you end up in hell. The ego is the planning mind, dividing worlds in two. First there is the outside, then inside there is you. But ego is not the centre, it serves that which you crave. Alone the ego is aimless, its only passion slave. The unconscious holds the shadow, the parts that are repressed. The person you're ashamed of, it's this you should express. For without this pain and anguish, you'll never see what's right. Accept the darkness fully, the burden then is light. The still point of the turning wheel, beyond the thinking mind. A centre outside ego, the soul's not hard to find. It is a moral compass, the logos and the means, to truth, to peace, to your core self, the guide within your dreams. So, still desire and aching mind, a voice within did say, the grace of life within you dwells, let it have its way. Through all your being, let it flow, arising from the chest. It pulses strong through all your fears. Let peace be on your quest. At still point of the turning wheel, all motion is at rest. Seek the centre of yourself. Let peace be on your quest.